the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our Co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol, a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, a graduate of Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I mentioned Trinity because uh, next week we're going to talk to a, a fellow Trinity grad. That's right. Uh, Wendy Rigby and I found out that we are both there at the same time, and we're going to welcome her to the show. That'll be next week. And today, have we got a special treat. Uh, we're going to be talking with Ken Griffey Sr., uh, all-star ball player, most valuable player in an all-star game, played for almost 20 years in the majors, and he's going to talk about prostate cancer. And he is, and his son is involved. They've got this very athletic family. Um, we, we've been we're thrilled to have Ken Griffey. Almost as thrilled as half the staff here at K Loop on thinking about the big sports star that we're having. Our on the technical show. director uh, Roland Ruiz almost went through the roof when he heard Ken Griffey Senior is going to be on. Our, our only regret is that he he's not in town today, but he will be here for the zero run. What is that? We'll tell you all about it. Next week. Listen, right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. But this week, before we jump into uh, talking about, well, two weeks, I guess, for the run, September 18th. Yes, he'll yeah. be. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, but right now, I've got a question for you because I, I read somewhere, and you've boned up on this, that some 12-year-old kid developed an app to help with uh, dealing with Alzheimer's. Well, you are correct. A 12-year-old. All right. So let's just talk about the unfair advantage she had right up front because her father is a software developer and he did assist. Ah. But she actually won an award. Um, she was one of the recipients of the 10 under 20. Yes, 12 years old is under 20 year olds. Uh, Innovation Awards uh, in New York. And she, her app is called Timeless. And it's an app for people with Alzheimer's. Her grandmother in Hong Kong has Alzheimer's. Uh, and it's an app to help people with Alzheimer's connect uh, with their loved ones. And so it has face recognition software. Uh, so if I were to you know, walk up, her phone would be, the app would look at me and say, oh, that's your daughter, Carol. And so she, you know, would give a little clue with her. Um, and, you know, it has some other, you know, memory lists and just some functionality to help somebody who's having trouble keeping everything at their fingertips and is still living at home. All you needed was my mother. Sal, you remember your son, Ron. She was the enabler. <laughs> she was the enabler. Well, you know, it, it's really nice that somebody has that kind of a heart. Yes. You know, that the grandmother means that much to her. And uh, the smarts she, to do that. And the smarts to do that. Um, you know, and she she says, well, I'd never really done a full-blown app before. Well, heck, I haven't either, and I'm way older than her. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't either. But, she, you know, she was smart. So not only did she have her father, who knew software design, but she actually worked with experts in Alzheimer's um, to ask, what are the problems that people with Alzheimer's have? What can I develop that would be the most useful for them? be an interesting show. It, what are the problems to anticipate and look for? Right. And, you know, and the only problem with having her on the show is, is she in school right now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't get her on. Oh, maybe they'll let her out to do this. Well, you know, she um, she actually got a scholarship. Um, so maybe with she's got a flexible schedule with the money and awards that she's garnering. So um, it, the app, by the way, is not the Timeless app is not yet on the market. Stay tuned. We'll let you know when it's out. Sounds pretty good to me. Now, speaking of dementia, uh, there are some who are suggesting uh, as devastating as dementia can be, there may be a silver lining. 
Well, this was a study that came out of the United Kingdom. I'm sorry, the United Kingdom. No, the UK is the University of Kentucky. Hello, let me back up. Um, University <laughs> of like Kentucky. Well, same initials. <laughs> well, UK. it was. I just saw UK. Um, you know, it's they they developed a questionnaire called, questionnaire called the Silver Lining Questionnaire that uh, talks about the diagnosis. They interviewed people that had a diagnosis of of Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment. And what they found was that um, it actually, for many of those people, it gave them a greater appreciation for life, right? They're in the early stage. They still know everything that's going on. They just got to have a little bit of confusion. Less concern about failure. So now they've given themselves permission to not do everything perfectly, which is very important if you have mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's. Um, And they they have self-reflection, more tolerance of others. I don't do things well. You don't do things well. That's okay. Um, And it really helps strengthen the relationships. So you think about people being told um, that they have a a chronic condition that's not going to get any better. It might get worse. I mean, how would you live your life differently? And that's, you know, we, we've asked this question on the air before. Sure. Would you want to know if you had Alzheimer's? And I've always said yes, because I think I would make decisions and use my time. And this um, silver lining questionnaire shows that it's actually has a positive impact. Getting that information, that diagnosis has had a positive impact on the lives of some people with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's. It's interesting because you're right, and and in a lot of different uh, activities, not demanding a thousand percent of yourself is a real plus. That's right, and you know, and to be we're so unforgiving of ourselves so many times, particularly caregivers. You know, we're the perfectionists, um, and, and being able for it to be okay not to be perfect. That what a gift that is for most people, uh, just to let go all of that uh, pent up you know frustration with yourself. We are living longer as a. Uh, uh, population in America today, not unusual to see people living well into their 80s, 90s, early 100s. And and the question always becomes uh, living well better and not suffering from all the issues that go with it, especially mental decline. If you do a lot of reading, does it make you live longer? Well, I loved this study. So the question is, um, a chapter a day, you know, does reading make you live longer? Just reading. And what kind of reading? Is a book the same as a magazine or reading online? And so, you know, for those of us who have been lifelong readers, uh, this was kind of good news. This was a study that involved almost 4,000 people. Um, We know books, you know, expose your mind and introduce you to people in places that, you know, you would never really go. But they, they looked at people who read um, and they studied them for 12 years, wow. you know, after baseline when they adjusted for age, sex, race, education, comorbidities, self-reported health, um, that you have uh, the book, re- book reading is better than magazine reading. So book reading contributed to a survival advantage that was significantly greater than for reading newspapers or magazines. Now, does that include if you're using... Uh, an iPad and a Kindle to read your book. Well, on? I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't matter because it's still just magazine articles. You know, it's the the short McNews as opposed to mm-hmm. you know reading long chapters and, and following a story, a whole big long story. We think about a novel, keeping um, characters straight. Right, and then and then compared to to non book readers, book readers had a twenty three month survival advantage, um, and book readers experienced a twenty percent reduction in mortality over the 12 years of follow-up over the non-book readers. Wow. That's pretty big. So, you know, crack a book, live a little longer, and that doesn't sound so bad. That's that's not going out and exercising and jogging, although you do need to get exercise. But book reading is something that you can do and enjoy. You know, pick up the new Harry Potter play. It's kind of fun, and read a book. I like that. I read probably a book and a half or two books a week on a Kindle. Yes, and so and like, the nice try, thing is, it's always with you if you carry it around. That's right, and I and I um, try to support the last remaining bookstores in the United States. So I carry around those hardback books on airplanes, and people look at me like I'm crazy. This is a WellMed related story. I'll tell you why I use a Kindle or an iPad to read books on. Uh, a couple years ago, I, I was uh, visiting with uh, George and Kim Rapier. George, being the founder of WellMed Medical Management, I had a book with me. He looked at me and he said. What is that in your hand? I said, it's a book. Why do you carry books around? 
Use your iPad. <laughs> and you said, yes, sir. I did. <laughs> Never to be seen with a book again. <laughs> I said, okay, okay I'm glad he didn't tell me that. That's, I'm not going to. I'm never showing up with a book from Dr. Rapier. But his point was, you always have it with you, and you don't have to lug them in your suitcase. No, it is true. But yeah. you know what? It builds muscles and as I well as books. longevity. I do. I believe in books. <laughs> uh, yeah, I said, yes, sir, I'll take care of that. <laughs> now... We got a minute to do this, and I know you can because the latest on state laws on caregiving. Well, I just want to give a quick shout out to the state of Illinois that has the governor just signed into law a bill permitting employees to use up to six months of earned sick leave benefits for caregiving responsibilities. So this is this is not FMLA. This is if you have sick leave benefits, you can actually use them for caregiving. For a you know a mother a you know your your parents your child um, your immediate family um, and and this is a big step because sick leave is paid leave right right and family, and family medical leave is, is unpaid leave and That's you can't exactly lose your job for that so shout out to Illinois for moving in the direction of helping caregivers well, good for them that makes sense up next we talked to Ken Griffey Senior and we're going to talk to uh, Dr Johnny Reyna as well prostate cancer and an interesting run coming up here in. Uh, San Antonio, and Ken Griffey Sr. Play ball will be there. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Caregiver, SOS On Air. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, this is very exciting, an opportunity to welcome uh, not only an incredible Incredible ball player, but a man who is now devoting a tremendous amount of time uh, to trying to help men understand and deal with prostate cancer. He was a three-time All-Star, a two-time World Series champion, a Major League Baseball All-Star game MVP, part of the big red machine in Cincinnati, Ohio. Ken Griffey Sr. joins us. Welcome to Caregiver SOS on Air. And tell us about the organization you put together. You know, it's basically a situation where it's called, uh, I'm working with Bear, and uh, it's called a campaign called Men Who Speak Up. And it's basically about getting men to talk to their doctors about their symptoms and, and what they're going through, uh, all the, if they have any pains or anything of that nature. So that's basically what we're doing. Well, let's go back in time, uh, Ken Griffey Sr., because uh, you had uh, in your family, uh, a number of the males in your family uh, had experience uh, with cancer, you were aware that it was a possibility, uh, and you are diagnosed with prostate cancer, but it came as a shock to you. Well, the shock is, you know, the, the biggest thing is that, uh, I, you know, when you're young, I guess you don't feel like you're supposed to get anything. Being being an athlete's another another scenario, you know, that athletes aren't supposed to have anything wrong with them at all. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of a shock because I, I didn't think I'd get it at, at that early age, to be honest with you. I was 55 at the time I think I got was diagnosed with prostate cancer. It's been 10 years now, so but it was early, and I didn't think I'd you know, uh, be diagnosed that early with it. Now, were you, so experiencing, that, that was, were you experiencing some symptoms or just part of a regular physical they checked you? No, it was part of a regular physical. I mean, being uh, I was still coaching at the time, um, and we have phys annual physicals, and I and I was one of the things I was getting checked with was my PSA, uh -huh. and you know, and all that stuff. You know, it basically is because of my mom. She was very, very, um, very, very uh, adamant about the fact that 
you know, us getting checked when we got older because she lost her, her four brothers on uh, with prostate cancer. And she made sure that we, you know, when we went in to get physicals and uh, as we got older and uh, to make sure we got checked. And like I said, you know, it, it was a situation where uh, I had a yearly physical. I had my PSA checked. A PSA went up high, and, you know, then I went from there, and, and then I ended up uh, being diagnosed with, with prostate cancer. And, uh, you know, that's when I had the surgery. You know, my younger brother is, uh, just got diagnosed about three weeks ago, and he and he's just had his um, prostate taken out. Wow. Now, you and your son, Ken Jr., uh, played at one point on the same baseball team, and, and that in itself is a rarity. And now the two of you are working together on this men's stand-up program. Is that right, you and your kid? Yeah, Junior and I are working on men who speak up. And, uh, it's it, you know, I make sure that he gets checked, too. I talk to him and my younger son, uh, Craig, both of them. You know, and they're, they're pretty pretty uh, diligent about getting their work done in terms of going with their, their physical, get everything checked, especially the PSAs. And as you take a look at uh, the work you're trying to do to make people aware uh, of prostate cancer, while the target is men, I would think, like you said, your mom pushed you to get tested, that women play an important role in helping men to stand up. Well, if it wasn't for my wife a lot of times, you know, I wouldn't even go see the doctor. But Val's been pretty pretty, uh, (laughs) adamant about that fact. You know, when I have a doctor's appointment, she makes sure I keep the appointment. So it, 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 yeah, they're always behind you. I mean, no matter how you think about it or what what the situation is, you know, your wife, especially my wife, is always there to let me know I need to do certain things that are very important to me and to the family. Now, as you think about your experience uh, facing prostate cancer, uh, you're a guy who, as a ball player, was used to a lot of stress, a lot of tension, uh, but dealing with cancer had to be very different for you. It was. I mean, it, it's a situation where the, the word itself is, is not a good word. No one wants to hear that they had cancer. And it puts a lot of mental pressure on you. You know, I mean, I, I went after I got diagnosed and everything with it, I talked to my doctors, and, um, you know, they, 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 they would tell you, you know, it's okay. It's a slow-growing cancer, but at the same time, you have to get take, take care of it. So, but that situation of it being in there in there i wanted to just get it out of my body that's all i wanted to do was think about getting it out uh out of my body so that that right there was a lot of stress of thinking because when i had um biopsies you know they weren't sure and uh they i had to do the biopsy thing again and that's when they really found out i had prostate cancer but that was like you know, when I first, by the time my first diagnosis was, it was almost almost eight months before I had the surgery, and those eight months were kind of real stressful because, like I said, I wanted to get it out of me. Right. Well, um, what did you you mentioned that your wife was heavily involved in making sure you kept your doctor's appointments? What did she say when you got the diagnosis? Well, she was a little, you know, a little nervous, but I, I kind of explained it to her that, you know, was diagnosed early. And, um, you know, when I told her, you know, once they diagnosed it and everything, they said it diagnosed early, I didn't have to go through any kind of radiation or any type of that, that uh, any kind of uh, radiation or uh, chemo at that time. So that was a, a, an important factor at that. And that kind of gave her a little, little uh, relief in terms of that. I bet it was a nervous eight months for her as well, waiting for half the surgery. Well, yes, it was more, you know, she was, she, uh, to be honest with you, she was a little more nervous than I was, but at the same time, I was nervous because I just wanted to get it out, you know, and I don't know, you know, we had basically went around talking to people about which which way should I go, should I do the radical surgery, or should I just do the, um, the, the robotic surgery, and I had a couple of friends who had went through the robotic surgery, and it was, which was actually at that time was fairly new. There wasn't very many doctors who who had uh, were able to do the, uh, the robotic surgery and didn't have that much experience with it. And I found found one who was a friend of mine who played for the Steelers. Uh, he told me about uh, Dr. Congrat down in um, Ventura, Florida. How did your uh, Men Who Speak Up program get underway? 
Well, I mean, it was a thing we had sat down, talked with Bear, and uh, they had come up with a campaign. And it was more of a situation because they asked me about uh, about the campaign and what, what would be the most important factor. And the most important factor was the fact that just getting men to talk about it. You know, I mean, you if you know as a man, no one tells them or tells their friends or anyone else that uh, they have prostate cancer. And prostate cancer is kind of a no-no. It's a macho man thing where they don't want to tell everybody they can't. You know, get ED, or you know, the, you know, they have problems uh, with the erectile dysfunction and all that kind of stuff. So they don't want to really talk about it. So it was a situation where Bear asked me, you know, would I would I do this? And I, like I said, I had four friends that played golf, and I didn't know they had prostate cancer until I was diagnosed, and it was on national TV with me that I got I had been diagnosed with prostate cancer and they finally come out and told me that they had prostate cancer. So like I said, I had been playing with them for a couple of years or three or four years and they uh-huh. never told me they had any any kind of prostate cancer until then. So to me, it was important to try to get men just to talk about it. You know, I mean go through what, whatever situation you're going through, but just to get them to talk about prostate cancer to their to fellow man, period. Well, and that's something that's really changed over the last 10 to 15 years is the willingness of people with a variety of illnesses to really speak up about the illness. And it makes a huge difference when somebody like you, whom people really look up to and admire, um, are, are willing to talk about it in public. It makes it so much easier for, you know, run-of-the-mill people uh, to talk about it. Well, that's important. You know, I, me, I didn't, I wasn't used really trying to use my platform in terms of my my status as a professional ball player. But it was just the idea that, you know, I had played with so many friends that had prostate cancer and didn't talk about it. And I said that, you know, when I got diagnosed, I thought it would be important for me to at least speak up about it. You know, and let people know what my symptoms were, what I'm going through, how I'm dealing with it, and all that kind of stuff. So that's what the Men Who Speak Up uh, campaign is all about. So just your luck, your prostate cancer is on national television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just my luck. <laughs> There's no secrets, right? The hardest, the hardest thing was actually telling my two, two boys, you know, telling Junior and uh, my son Craig that I had it, you know. Now we've got yeah, a... I understand that. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, telling your uh, kids who... Uh, uh, already knew because they heard about it through the grapevine and through television. What was it like telling them, and what was their reaction? Well, it was kind of uh, funny with Junior because I knew I wouldn't see him for a couple of weeks, and he already knew about it. He was just one; he just wanted to look at me and see me, and to talk to me and see if I'm if I looked okay or if I'm you know a little weak or whatever. But I, I finally ran into him in Philadelphia. He was playing in Philly when he was with the Reds. And he got a chance to sit down. We talked about everything, and you know he felt a lot better. But it was a, uh, it was kind of a tough scenario to tell him. You know, during that that time I was diagnosed, his mom was diagnosed at the same time with colon cancer that same week. So it was a little tough on him and Craig because you know him playing ball. He I didn't want to distract him about what I was going through. So I kind of told him to worry about his mom a little bit, and then she's the one that told him that I had it and that's what really kind of upset him because I wouldn't I didn't t- tell him right away what was going on but it worked out all right I mean he he did okay he handled it pretty good now I understand you're coming to San Antonio for the zero prostate cancer run walk that is coming up on Sunday September 18th right yes and I will be there you'll be there and folks who want to come out will have a chance to talk with you and meet you and uh, maybe even get an autograph or two That'll be fine. There's no problem with that. I have it. I don't have any issues with doing that. I like that, and especially talk about, especially talking about prostate cancer and, and try to get the word out about men who speak up. Now, I don't have any problem with signing a little autograph. So, when you sign an autograph, Ken Griffey Senior, do you say, "P.S. Get your prostate checked"? <laughs> no, I say, I say, "P.S. Don't be afraid of the finger." <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. I like that a lot. The uh, the run walk, by the way, is in uh, a really pretty park, Mission County Park uh, Pavilion here in San Antonio. I don't know if you got here much. Uh, uh, we of course don't have professional baseball. We've got the Spurs, but uh, oh yeah, just a minor league we know about them. team. <laughs> yeah. And you're living in in Winter Park, Florida, right? 
No, no, I live in um, actually Langhorne, Pennsylvania now. Oh, okay. Oh, much very pretty. I I think Pennsylvania is a good choice. Yeah, I grew up in Cleveland, yeah. which is a uh, you know it's a clone well, of well, Pennsylvania. Right. Well, I'm originally from the, the east, southeastern, uh, southwestern side of Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. So, you know, my wife and I had owned a home up in uh, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, for years, and we decided from Florida we're going to move up there and, and try to re- renovate it, get it back in order, and then we're going to cool. kind of sell it and move back to where we were at in Florida. No, there you I go. was going to say you really wanted to get that snow in, right? <laughs> Yeah, finally. You know, that first that first time being back after not being there for like 15 years, yeah. it was like real hard to make that adjustment. <laughs> hey, we got to stop you right here. Carol, you wanted to add? Oh, I just wanted to say I look forward to meeting you in person, the WellMed Charitable Foundation, where we're the title sponsors for the run, and we'll see you on September the 18th. Well, that would be great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, Ken. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, and I uh, hope you have a great trip up here to, uh, well, down here from uh Pennsylvania to San Antonio, oh. Texas. You take care. Uh, all right. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Ken Griffey Sr., who will be in San Antonio on September 18th for the Zero Prostate Cancer Run Walk. And speaking of that, we're going to talk in just a minute uh, to the man who is behind it, Johnny Reyna, a San Antonio urologist and co-founder of Los Padres. We'll talk with him right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. It was a whole lot of fun talking with Ken Griffey Sr. right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Uh, and as we promised, Dr. Johnny Reyna joins us now, a San Antonio urologist and co-founder of the nonprofit Los Padres, which hosts the San Antonio Zero Prostate Cancer Run Walk Sunday, September 18th. Uh, and we're just really pleased that you were able to hook us up with, uh, with Ken Griffey Sr. Carol Zerniel, our co-host, is here as well. Hi, Dr. Well, thank you. Hi, Carol. I sure appreciate you all bringing me on the show. We are really looking forward to this event uh, coming up and so happy that Ken's going to be able to join us. I think that's a huge honor for us, and I think it'll make it really special. Uh, he talked about how men, and he was in a foursome playing golf down in Florida when he was living down there, and he played with some guys for quite a while, never knew any of them had had prostate cancer uh, <laughs> until his prostate cancer was on yeah, national television. he said it was television. years. He said he'd been years. playing for years, yeah. and no one said yeah. a word until he came forward, you know, on television. Na- yeah, national TV with prostate cancer. Then apparently they all acknowledged to him, oh, gee, we had it too. And that's part of the challenge is not getting men to talk about it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, now, you would think that once they've had it and they've survived it, it would be a pretty easy thing to do. It's almost harder sometimes to get men to even go make sure that they don't have prostate cancer. And that's kind of what our, our, our event is all about. We're really working to try and bring this whole idea of prostate cancer, knowing about it, getting tested for it, trying to get screened and, and find this disease early, and, and hope to get the, the information out there. Like our, our sisters and in, in the, the uh, breast cancer uh, uh, people have done such a fabulous job and bringing public awareness to that particular cancer, we're just trying to do the same thing with this man's cancer. Well, give us the 411 on prostate cancer. Uh, Ken said he was 55 when he was diagnosed. He thought that that was a little young. When are you at greatest risk for prostate cancer? Well, certainly once you turn 50, uh, you know, the the chances of your developing prostate cancer are going to start to to climb uh, ever so much every year. If you're an African-American man like Ken, uh, your chances are going to almost double to two and a half times what would be normal for, for most people. So, uh, again, starting at age 50, if you're an Af- African, or maybe even 40 when you're an African-American male, or, Ron, if somebody in your family, a dad or a brother, immediate family, has had prostate cancer, you're in that same boat. You need to start getting tested early. So, you know, we'd say um, age 50 for everybody else, but for African-American men or men who have a history of prostate cancer in the family, age 40. Now, tell us about the cancer itself, because as Ken mentioned, uh, some forms of prostate cancer are slow-growing. 
Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, but the, the issue about prostate cancer and some of the things that, that we are really concerned about, you know, 2012, the USPSTS uh, uh, came out with the idea that prostate cancer screening probably shouldn't be done because men weren't dying of prostate cancer. Well, somebody needs to explain to us why 28,000 men are going to die this year of prostate cancer. Uh, and, and so we believe that the testing for this particular disease is so important because if we find a cancer, and if it is a slow-growing one, we can follow it. We can follow it together and then decide if and when we're going to do anything about it. But if we don't know, uh, it, it could evolve from a slow-growing cancer to a fast-growing cancer. And when that happens, nobody can put a finger on that. And so I think it's important that, that we realize that most of these cancers are, in fact, very slow-growing, but not all of them. And so we need to make sure that we know where, you know, where we start to intervene for these patients. Because almost universally, when we find this disease early, Ron, we can cure this disease. I mean, we've got about a 98% cure rate on this disease when wow. we find it early. Well, yeah. Do the recommendations from the task force, are they concerned about cost? Are they concerned about risk from the screening? You know, where do you think this came from? Well, I, they looked at, at a study um, and out of Europe, uh, and unfortunately it was a flawed study. It, it, really, uh, it really didn't have a whole lot of credence. Um, unfortunately, nobody on that task force, Carol, was a urologist, and nobody on that task force was a cancer person. <laughs> So um, you're serious. You know, I, I am, you're serious about that. Oh, I'm absolutely serious. Well, how I, could that happen? This, how could well, that possibly be true? But remember, these are the same people that recommended that we should do mammograms for women uh, for breast cancer. Equally, uh, yeah, equally as stupid. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's just I think that if you're going to make a recommendation like that, then you ought to get people who are in the field, people who practice this every day, day in, day out and have some input from us. Uh, so I, I, I am really, you're all this all over the country, but just a gas that, this, that this, they let this go through. But what can we say? It's, uh, you know, it's uh, water under the bridge now. So anyway, we think that this is an important uh, time to jump in, in in terms of getting these guys screened, uh, looking at these PSAs, getting this exam done. And boy, that's that's uh, another really hard part for us for people to do is because sometimes they think, well, I'll get my blood test, and if it's normal, I, I don't have to go through that exam. But the truth of the matter is, Ron, that every year we operate a significant number of people, or we treat a significant number of people that had absolutely normal PSA. Well, that's the problem. Digital. That's the problem with yeah. that test, is it not? It gives false positives. It, it can give false positives, but it can also give false negatives. Right. Exactly. So a normal PSA doesn't mean that you don't have prostate cancer. Now hold that thought. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Johnny Reina. Dr. Reina is a urologist, and he is the guiding light behind the Zero Prostate Cancer Run Walk coming up September 18th. Their special guest Ken Griffey Senior will be there. Well. Um Dr. Rena, let me ask you a question about age. So we know the incidence of cancer goes up with age, um, and but there has been discussion as well about the relationship between prostate cancer, slow growing, as we've already talked about, and age. Is Do you have a recommendation for people who are age 70 or older? I think that, you know, uh, the Carol, you know, because you guys have such a, an amazing population of well-met patients, but you know that a 70-year-old person nowadays is not the 70-year-old person that we knew back, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, people are more active. People are living longer. Most of the recommendations are that if somebody is going to live another 10 years, then it's worth getting a PSA, and it's worth looking at that. Uh, if somebody is really already ill or, you know, has a lot of comorbidities, diabetes and hypertension, stroke, all those kind of things, then uh, probably you don't want to be testing in a situation like that because you're not going to be able to offer anything that would be of any great benefit and, in fact, maybe more, more of, a, of a morbidity to this, uh, to this individual than not. And so we kind of use a 10-year survival um, uh, number to, to decide if or not we're going to do some testing. And the other is just talking with a patient. I mean, a lot of these patients want to have a PSA when they're 80 because they're still very active and they plan to be around for a while. We certainly would not withhold that test from them if they wanted it. 
Now they just compare their numbers on the first tee when they get out there. Hey, what's your PSA? <laughs> yes, that, that happens quite a bit. That happens quite a bit. Now, one so. of the other recommendations, uh, and I happen to be 74, so uh, Carol picked a number that uh, hits me right in the top of the head. Uh, some have recommended that for those who are 70 and over, uh, not only don't do the PSA, but discontinue the digital exam because they're not going to do anything for you anyhow. Now, my doctor, well, my well-med doctor, continues with the exam because he thinks it's important to know, and then your options are pretty clear. I, 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 and I, I agree with him. I think that, you know, uh, Ron, I've seen you, and, you know, you, I would have never known you were 74 if he hadn't told me. Well, thank you. Uh, and, and so I think that that decision should be made between the physician and the patient. Uh, the decision to draw a PSA should not necessarily be age-related unless, you know, like I said before, there are so many things going on with that patient that they don't need to be put through more testing, more biopsies, more of anything else. But I don't think there's a straight age anymore. I think that because our population of patients are so much healthier at older ages than they used to be, I think you have to pick each patient individually and make that decision with them. Well, Dr. Raina, tell us a little bit about Los Padres and, you know, about the run and what we can expect on September the 18th. Well, Carol, uh, Los Padres is uh, really only two people. It's, it's Joni, my wife, and myself. And, and it's it's a nonprofit that we came up with. Uh, about um, four years ago, um, the group that I was a, the president of and CEO uh, named our cancer center, uh, and they put my name on it. It's the Dr. Johnny Reyna Center for Cancer Treatment. And we both thought that that was such a great honor that we couldn't just sit back and say, well, just uh, our name's going to be on the building. We don't have to worry about that. And no, we felt that it was important for us to make sure that we are going to do something with that honor. And, and we decided to create this, this organization uh, called Los Padres, which means, of course, the fathers, because sooner or later, every father has the opportunity to develop prostate cancer. Hopefully not, but everyone does. And so uh, we felt that if we could start bringing more awareness, uh, and in our community, uh, and God knows being a Hispanic male, Hispanic males are often very reluctant to know or to to go to find out what's going on with their bodies. And so we felt that it was important for for us to bring awareness to this whole issue of prostate cancer. And it's what we did. uh, We're doing is our mission statement for our couple's mission statement. And so... Uh, we've had a lot of fun with it. Uh, we've been very successful. We've found a number of cancers very early. We've been lucky to have cured a number of people. And so uh, we plan to continue this as long as the Lord lets us. Well, how do people register for the race? Well, they can go to, to a website, and it's called a, it's www.zeroprostatecancerrun. That's all kind of run together. Zeroprostatecancerrun.org slash San Antonio. Um, and then, you know, you can register at that website, uh, and uh, right now, or actually starting uh, right after Labor Day, we're going to have a, a special where they can get $10 off of the registration fee, which is $25, so that'll be only fi- uh, $15, and uh, there's a, a code that you would put in. It's for Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. It's PCAM for prostate cancer awareness, and then 16. So PCAM 16 from September 1st through September the 15th, and they'll get $10 off their registration. And I like that you've got a a snooze for dudes opportunity, a virtual run. You know, a lot of people feel that if you go to a run, you're obligated to run. Uh, You know, I I never (laughs) felt quite that strongly. My wife does, but I don't. And so, you know, we're going to have food. We're going to have little drinks, cold drinks. The beer, uh, a lot of families come out. Uh, a number of prostate cancer survivors are out there, uh, and uh, we just have a good time. It's a great family event, and, and I think people would enjoy it. We do have the kids involved. We have a, a, uh, a little kind of dash for dads, uh, and uh, it's, it's a, a thing that the kids do. We get them, we put capes on them, and uh, nine and under have this, their own little race, and, and uh, we have a great time with that as well. So the whole family's involved in this. There's a 10K, a 5K, a one-mile fun walk, the kids' superhero dash for dads. And so something to benefit everybody, 
And for those guys that want to sit around and stand around and drink beer, I, I'll, I'll join you. And, uh, and where so, is the uh, Run Walk? We're going to be at the Mission County uh, uh, Park Pavilion, um, which is a, a beautiful uh, uh, venue. It's, a, it's a very large. It's very nice. There's lots of shade. Again, there'll be food. There'll be drink. Plenty of parking. And, um, and the, the thing starts at 8.30 on uh, September the 18th, which is a Sunday. So, um, you know, we'd love to have everybody out there. I think it will be a great time. Well, my husband and I are already signed up, so we're looking forward to seeing you um, and everybody, the families. It really is a great event. And now that I know about the beer, uh, that just doubles the chance that my husband will actually show up with me. (laughs) Great, Carol. I'll have one with you, a cold one. Hey, thank you. We really appreciate you coming on. we got to jump and run. So uh, speaking of the run walk, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, you you take care. Dr. Johnny Reyna, San Antonio urologist and the driving force along with his wife and the Zero Prostate Cancer Run Walk. Sunday, September 18th, I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernio. We're on 930 AM, The Answer. You got it. Caregiver, SOS, on air. Up next, take 10. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 AM, The Answer. Well, as we promised at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we bring you Take 10 with nationally known psychotherapist Dr. Jamie Heisman, an expert on addictions and caregiving as well, and our co-host Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, I have to tell you, when my dad died and my mom had been his caregiver for probably 10 years, he had dementia and it you know, progressively got worse and worse and worse. After he died, she didn't know what to do. She was absolutely out of sorts, and it was very difficult for her. Well, you know, that I don't think that's uncommon. Um, you know, I was reading about a woman who cared for both of her parents. You know, one of them died first. She spent another four years taking care of the, the second one. And, you know, it was a very intense time in her life. She's calling them two and three times a day. She's driving back and forth from out of town. She's flying in X number of weekends you know, a month. Um, and it's it's a very intense experience. So Jamie, you know, and she was talking about she was at a loss. All of a sudden, when both of her parents had passed, she had all this time and had no idea what to do with herself. Is this common for, for caregivers instead of going, well, that I, I'm done, I'm ready to move on to have a period of, oh, what just happened here? Yeah, but what you both describe are pretty similar events in Ron's life and, and your example, too. And these are like long-term caregiving experiences, and all of a sudden, then your your loved one passes. And as much as we like to think, I mean, you know, we don't psychologically really know because there's not a lot of evidence-based research out there that caregivers do sort of go through the grieving process before someone passes because they're they're there and they see the chronic or terminal illness and are able to really integrate it. That's not really the case. In, in fact, when when something happens like you're describing, it it becomes a, we hope normal grief, because normal grief is, is, is a natural response to any loss of any kind. Loneliness and fatigue and sadness and irritability are all a part of, of that normal grief process. And so to your question, they need not rush a thing. They need definitely to, to settle back and realize that grief is a, is a great indicator of the love and the love lost. It's when it becomes complicated grief, which is the the long-term grief that that lasts far beyond any diagnostic criteria for simple grief, that then things go awry. So that's when they really can't let go. It just goes on and on and on. I think uh, a few months ago we talked about a a caregiver who it had been two years, and it was like the death occurred last week. Oh, 
Carol, you know, the triggers and the cues come fast and furiously. And I'll just take it from my own personal life. I mean, my mom passed away almost 10 years ago. And, and uh, yeah, I'd say it was pretty complicated for me. Um, she was my hero. She was my uh, my corrective experience. She put up with me as a very difficult child and advocated and supported me. And, and, and somehow I knew when she was in this world, everything was great. Uh, but when she was out of this world, then I felt uh, lost. And, and that, you know, believe me, that was when I was 50 years old. So struggling with anniversaries and special days and feeling intense emotional pain long after the fact because you're being cued or triggered, um, this is really about more later on complicated grief. Now, in my mother's case, there's no question that uh, she began to struggle with depression uh, because not only had she been the caregiver, but it was also... Her husband, who she had been married to for 65-plus years, so it was a, really a devastating loss for her. Oh, Ron, you know, let's face it. Adults have a difficult time changing, spoken by a therapist. It's very very difficult to find people who, unless they go through long-term therapeutic intervention, will really change after a certain time in their life. And when you're married for that length of time, I mean, the normal is definitely normal. And, and it's very difficult to to. to even perceive change. I'm sure when, when, you know, when he was alive, it was difficult to perceive it. But after somebody goes, the patterns, the habits, the, the rituals, um, you know, how do you struggle with those uh, without professional help? How do you do that? Well, um, you know, I remember back at when you and I first started working together and we had multiple conversations about some recommendations that you had for post-caregiving. So what kinds of things um, do you recommend for people who have finished their caregiving duties um, and are really trying to re-enter normal, quote-unquote, life? Well, the mention of caregiving is, is not an episode. Uh, it is an experience, and I'm glad you brought that up. And so the first thing, I mean, and I think this should be on everybody's hit list as number one, um, is to find a supportive group of people. Now, that comes in many different ways and sizes. For sure, your biological family, if you have a biological family, um, and many, you know, don't, many have passed on, um, that would be obviously your first group you would try to connect with. Uh, I say that the second one is always going to be your family of choice, your faith-based sort of background, who you may have, the the, the neighbors, the friends, the, the pastors, the rabbis, the imams, whomever. That's critical. But the first thing you should do in the same tradition of, of those two is to find yourself a support group, realizing that the caregiving experience doesn't end when somebody passes away. So it might be that if you're already in a caregiving support group, you don't want to quit immediately. You know, you might want to continue going to the support group, or if you haven't had a support group in the past, because uh, you were, you know, for whatever reason, you just didn't have time or, or, or didn't uh, take advantage of it, now is the time to take advantage of that support group, because there are a lot of caregivers that actually do stay in support groups on purpose after their loved ones have passed, I know in our work, uh, because they want to give back to and help new caregivers who are just starting their caregiving journey. Well, I think you bring up the best point here is, is that you do not, under any circumstances, leave that group when your loved one passes. Um, that is only a part of this continuum we call caregiving. And it's really, I think, the most important time to remain. Um, let's face it, everybody there is, is now known to you. You're cohesive. They can reflect your emotions and psyche back. They can, you know, when we're on our own head, and, and to Ron's point, when depression happens, we become very self-engrossed and we don't see things outside. And then, as we talked about in the beginning, we start isolating. This group is, is imperative, imperative to remain with. And as a, as a clinician, I also was an uh, adjunct professor at Florida International University, and I taught group therapy. And I'll go on record as a therapist to say that if it's a choice between one-on-one and group therapy for a caregiver, stay in group. Group is the more dynamic, the more powerful the more, I believe, greater bridge over troubled waters than you can possibly find. Always good to have a a one-on-one relationship so you can take the group experience and go cry with somebody, but I really believe support groups are the the, the first place people should remain and stay with. His alter ego, he's Paul Simon. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. Dr. Jamie Heisman is with us on this segment, as he is every week on Caregiver SOS on air. We call it Take 10. Dr. Jamie, is there not a benefit to start preparing 
for when that caregiving uh, responsibility is going to end, especially if you're dealing with someone uh, who's terminal, you know the end is coming, maybe they're in hospice, maybe they're failing, uh, so you can be prepared for the day when it is over. Well, Ron, that's a great point, and, and now you've jumped to the other, you know, the other intervention, which is one-to-one. Um, this is a real intimate place. It's between you and one other person who we hope you have a therapeutic relationship with, and that could take some time. It could take several weeks, take a couple of months. But to prepare for somebody's passing, all these emotions flood our minds, especially guilt, shame, you know, you know, a part of, you know, how can we actually even think of our loved one passing? But one-on-one, at least once a week, uh, with a therapist, bringing up this very difficult, challenging topic of preparing for a loved one's passing um, is the perfect place to be and to stay with. Um, I do think you'll prepare, and I do think that you'll go back and you'll be able to actually celebrate somebody's life while they're alive, especially this is true with neurological disorders more so with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Lewy body. Um, when somebody's not cognitively there, you can start celebrating early, but you can only do that in a safe, warm, supportive environment. Maybe that's not the group, but I definitely believe that's one-on-one. Got about a minute left. Well, Jamie, um, it, you know, connecting with friends, uh, maybe picking up hobbies that you gave up along the way. I mean, there are some other things that can help you feel normal again. It's so true, Carol, and, and I almost would put the group or people or family of choice or any one of the things that you gravitate to um, to test. I would actually allow them to keep us in check. If you really want to uh, be able to come out of this experience, not in complicated grief, but in a very healthy way, um, you know, you want to be accountable and you want to ask somebody to help you be accountable. So whether it's a support group, whether you go to the gym, uh, make sure you foster that friendship that maybe you've let go in the caregiving side. Uh, make sure somebody's with you, always checking in with you and keeping you, let's say, on the path of healing. Because as we always say, isolation is the cancer of the caregiver's soul. Got to stop you right there. You get the last word and what a great word it was. Thank you, Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. We want to thank you for joining us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We'll talk with you soon on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.